Howdy folks, and welcome to the Six Ranch Podcast. On today's show, I have Cody Rich and Ben Gatormson. Before we get into that, I want to clear up a couple details from last week's show. I said the Wallow River was flowing at 14,000 CFS when it was actually 4,100. You can see how I'd make that mistake. Harney Basin is a closed basin, but there are actually several closed basins in Oregon, like Warner, Goose Lake, Catlow, etc. And I called trout on Cornicus instead of on Corinchus. Emily pointed that one out. Furthermore, there is little scientific evidence that waterfowl transport fish eggs, but I'm sticking to this one as somewhere between feasible and highly likely. Now, on to today's show. We recorded this episode at Cody's studio in Bozeman while I was having my motorcycle worked on. I had ridden it from Oregon to Montana to shoot a sniper competition and was taking off right afterward for a bear hunt in Idaho. We talk long-range shooting, its real-world limitations, and a bunch of other BS. Enjoy the show. Do you want your voice to sound deep? <laughs> Do you got auto-tune on that thing? <laughs> auto-tune. I think Ben's voice sounds pretty deep anyway. It's a little bit sultry. If you're going to announce a movie, what kind of movie would you announce? Like if, um, like if you're going to do the preview. I don't know. A cartoon? A cartoon. Yeah, like a kid movie. Okay. I think you'd have to put a little bit more ben, bounce in it. For can you say movie. EA Sports, it's in the game? EA Sports, it's in the game. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to go low there. <laughs> EA Sports. Uh, <clears throat> all righty, guys. Well, I have with me Cody Rich from the rich outdoors podcast and backcountry fuel box and ben gatormson i don't even know how to describe your job how would you describe your job um i don't know it depends on the day it's, <laughs> it's uh, Tuesday. yeah so on tuesdays um i work in sales and marketing for a um, firm that's uh, based out east and we, we handle and work with products across the, the outdoor space. Very broad spectrum. We're very diversified. We, uh, you know, fishing categories, um, ammunition, bullet categories, hunting categories, you know, archery-specific products, um, firearm-specific products. We're, I, th- I believe we're one of the largest sales and marketing agencies in the country. We offer representation coast to coast. I think we have uh, I think we have over fifty on the ground <clears throat> people working, and uh, we've got two divisions. We've got a hunting division, and then we have an outdoor division. So, yeah, it's uh, it's, and, it's a it's a great company. Yeah, so. and, and just so people understand a little bit, like when you go into either a mom and pop outdoor store, fishing, hunting store, bait shop, whatever, or you're going into a sportsman's or a Cabela's. Somebody like you is working with that store to sort of help them acquire all of their goods, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's an exercise in, in taking advantage of, of all programs that the manufacturer offers and uh, to maintain the highest level of profitability in, in the brands that we're working with. You know, so we kind of work both sides. We work with the brands to offer attractive uh, 
programs. You know, we help develop programs for these brands to uh, to have for be it buy group members or just your your mom and pop shop. Um, and then we have we actually have teams that work with all the major box stores okay. um, and all the you know be it Bass Pro Cabela's or like Academy. You know, Academy's based down south. So it's it's a you know we're interwoven kind of helping connect the brands with the the dealers you know from on every level and the hunting industry is like a 17 billion dollar industry annually yeah i i think that sounds pretty close it right in the uh, ballpark yeah it might be it might be you know 17 billion dollar industry it's it's crazy so last year hunter spent 11 billion dollars on travel really yeah so when I'm talking about the importance of thinking about things like like motorcycle-based hunting as, as a new avenue for people to travel in order to experience the outdoors and basically experience everything that you experience on a motorcycle and route to your destination, this is a really big industry that folks have kind of yet to tap into and yet to appreciate because when you go from A to B, there's actually quite a few letters between A yeah. and B where people are stocking and spending money. It's not free to get anywhere. That's insane. A lot of money. I didn't realize it was that big. It's pretty big. And I don't know I'm who gonna, counts that. I wouldn't want to be in charge of counting that. But <laughs> yeah. this is what I read. Well, you, you think of it. Let's any, go to Lemon and say those are made up numbers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you look They're at. They're all made up numbers. You look at what a, what a hunter goes through to go on a hunting trip. Yeah. And, you know, you're. you're you're at a pretty substantial dollar figure. And then and then you start to look at it like he's spending equally as much to get where he's going and to spend the time there, be it, you know, in the in the transportation, in the you know, the the groceries and, you know, everything. So at the end of the year, you know, I mean a, a really hardcore guy is gonna spend a pile of money on gear and then there's the the travel aspect of it. Yeah. So so Jordan Bud did a beautiful podcast um, for Rock Slide that detailed basically everything that you would need to do a, a, a small backpack hunt and went through every piece of gear and what she uses and how much it costs and kind of gave you a, a, a top figure, middle figure, bottom figure. And it was basically to, to do it correctly, but as inexpensively as possible without optics, guns, ammo, bow, whatever. It was pretty close to two thousand bucks. Really? Yeah. And uh, they used to have this like this concept of a thousand dollar hunt, but you'd have to be fairly close to home to execute that because just fuel alone. Yeah. I mean, and that would be pretty Spartan. You'd you'd be risking large degrees of discomfort. I want to do it though. I want to like take a thousand dollars and see if we can make it happen. You'd have to like you have to be first off a resident hunt because the tags are. Yeah, whatever. But I would be fun to just do the thousand dollar challenge and like take a thousand bucks and you have to go outfit yourself. Like you got to go to the pawn shop and find a bow. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay, we're going to spend a hundred dollars on arrows, which is like not, you could probably get like Facebook marketplace. Like, I don't know. I think it'd be fun to actually go kill an elk for under a thousand dollars. I would rather buy three $30 arrows. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Tell how good I am at math. I think that equals 85. Three $30 arrows. Pretty sure it's 90. I was joking. Katie. No. <laughs> Come on. 
It's no fun when you got to explain the joke. <laughs> I think it's more fun sometimes, especially if, <laughs> if it's it a, depends on the individual. Yeah. Well, if, if it's, it's a J- bad joke, James loves awkward humor. So. <laughs> <laughs> he likes messing uh, with people. Well, yeah, of he course. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, tell me about. I don't know. Give me the cliff notes on the rich outdoors. Like uh, the rich out. <laughs> you're like 400 something episodes in your podcast. Yeah. Like 450 something. I don't know. Uh, yeah. 450 episodes deep. We do a hunting podcast mainly on tips and tactics. I would say the first, at least 425. Um, but there's got a wide spattering of everything you could possibly think about. Um, we get to the point where there's so many that we need to create like compilations of best elk podcasts and things like that. So we're getting ready to launch those. So if people want to check it out on, I, I'm just going to put it out there. Then we have to do it. So go to Spotify and we're going to put out some lists, like top 10 stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's a hardcore hunting podcast where I interview people and ask them why they know more than me. Sure. And it's not super hardcore. Cause I've been on a bunch of times. And I'm like, <laughs> You know, medium well core at, at best. It's <laughs> <laughs> a try hard crowd. Right? <laughs> uh, but uh, no, Cody. Cody's a good friend of mine. Um, we've been friends for for several years, and James I had, married me. Yeah, I had the great honor of officiating Cody and his wife's wedding, and that was fun. So I am um, an official minister of some fairly bogus online. <laughs> church <laughs> i was trying to think of the name of it i think it's the universal life church it feels like something that i that i should know yeah i thought there was the word spaghetti in there though well <laughs> that's the one that kelsey wanted me to do is like the the spaghetti monster rastafarian something or other <laughs> um but uh you know wait so, so my wedding is all bs now like it, you weren't actually a minister of the rastafarian <laughs> spaghetti clan <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, I think it was, yeah, I don't want to offend anybody who's uh, religious about their Rastafarian spaghetti, but, uh, no, I think it was universal oh. something, which I think is pretty common. Like if you're going to go marry your friends, that seems to me, it's the first one that pops up on Google. <laughs> yeah. Very, very religious. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. And then you also have a business called backcountry fuel box, which is, like a shoebox full of snacks intended to be eaten on the mountainside whilst hunting or hiking or fishing. And the, uh, the type of snacks in that box rotate month to month, right? So it's a sub- subscription thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was secretly my way to always have snacks, never have to go to REI, try new stuff, all these good things. But sometimes you're podcast friends just come in and eat things out of the warehouse <laughs> hey i was hungry <laughs> if your profession is giving people snacks oh, yeah. um, selling people snacks then your buddies are going to take advantage of that <laughs> i'm like i always say i'm like the fat kid at, at school that always had the good snacks <laughs> that's my profession <laughs> yeah and you trade it for other stuff Did yeah. You, yeah didn't you see his eyes roll when i asked i'm like hey do you got any snacks around here i didn't eat breakfast. I know. We're <laughs> literally in a warehouse full of snacks. Yeah, you knew the answer to the oh, question. Oh, I know. We all knew. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I was fairly specific. So, uh, yeah. He, 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 I mean, yeah. Ben's been here before. He's like, hey, do you have any snacks in this category, yeah. in this flavor palette? <laughs> the good stuff. <laughs> Top shelf meat snacks. <laughs> Need some pocket meat before we do this podcast. Hey, I've left beer in the fridge, so I don't feel bad. No, this is so. true. Ben has probably brought... Far more alcohol to the podcast studio than he's ever drank by a long shot. Yeah. Yeah. That's a debit. 
Yeah. I don't get invited very often, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the reason that I am in Montana is I was competing in the S3 sniper competition in southwest Montana um, that was put on by my friend Peter Howell and his shooting partner, Bill Wood. And Ben, you were down there volunteering your little heart out as a range officer, which is a thankless job. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was an experience for me. I've I've never been to uh, any kind of a, a rifle or pistol competition like that. I've I've seen stuff, you know. I've seen the, the three gun stuff. I've seen videos of it, obviously photos. But to be actually there and and be a part of it and you know be helping out, it was it was it was really cool. So now Cody is uh, Powder River still a thing? No. Okay. So Cody also used to own a cartridge company so yeah. he was a professional producer of munitions yeah that was a another life ago well things just got so busy we kind of put it on the back shelf and i've sold off pieces of it but yeah for oh man 2010 so seven years ish ran an ammunition company yeah so what i really want to talk about today is is shooting and obviously we're coming off this weekend of a sniper competition where we're doing a lot of long range shooting mixed in with a little bit of pistol shooting. My shooting experience is uh, a lifetime of hunting and then five years in the Marine Corps um, where the only types of competition that we did was the rifle qualification courses. Um, so you're competing against Marines. Mostly you're competing against yourself. There are three different badges that you can receive that go on your uniforms to show your, your level of proficiency. So qualifying expert is something that you really want to strive to do. Um, if you're, if you're below that with pistol or rifle, then that's nothing that a Marine really proudly wears on their <laughs> chest. Marines are all about marksmanship. And then I've done a pile of, uh, of archery competitions since I was old enough to pull back a bow. And then I've shot a lot of pistol competitions, but I had never shot a long range rifle competition before. So this was all very new to me. It was completely, completely fresh water. So I want to talk with you guys a little bit real quick, just about what this competition looks like. So there were 25 stages, something like that. Um, 24 stages, two days of shooting where we did about 12 stages per day. Uh, maybe a little bit less than that. And you would walk up to a stage and there would be a range officer there like Ben. And Ben would say, okay, at this stage, um, we have target at the bottom of the hill. Does everybody see that target? Like, yes. Okay. That's going to be the pistol target. Look down the straw. There's another target. Keep going up that draw. There's another target and then go way up that draw. And there's another target. Everybody see the targets and you and your partner both say yes. Okay. You've identified the targets. You now have two minutes to prepare. So then I bust out a rangefinder and I range can the I, target. Can I pause you for a second? Sure. Is it just your team at this each stage or are you with multiple teams at each stage? You have a squad. So there's probably three teams Roger. at the stage, but there's just two of you shooting at a time, you and your partner. So now I have two minutes to pre prepare. So I pull out my rangefinder, range the target, um, try and get a good range on it. And it's sometimes that's very difficult. Maybe this target is up on a post on a skyline and you don't know if you're hitting the target or the sagebrush behind it or the tree behind that. Mm -hmm. And it matters very much whether you're correct in that or not. So the first level of marksmanship is with your laser. And we talked about that in the Marine Corps quite a bit because we would have pilots come on and they would fire, say a, a laser guided rocket or something like that. And 
you know, they have to keep this laser pointed at the target and say it's a moving target, like a vehicle. And then the rocket is just going to keep tracking towards that laser. So laser marksmanship was a thing in the Marine Corps. Yeah. And now I'm doing it again. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's funny, you, you know, in terms of that, having worked the station and seeing the different teams come through, there were a lot of teams that just, you know, would pull their laser rangefinder out of their bino pouch and shoot. And then you had teams that had a, a tripod with a plate mounted on top of it with a spotting scope on one end of the plate, a kestrel in the middle, and a laser rangefinder mounted, you know, fixed, hard mounted on the right. Yeah. So that's that's a... I didn't even think of that. So who is more accurate? Because that's the first thing I thought of. Um, you know, for for our for our station, the the long shot of the we had five five different target engagements. One was a a pistol that was 130 yards, but the longest one Ooh. we would we would tell them the range. Okay. You know, it was it was 1080, and and we would say, you know, that's at 1080. So. But just that target. Just that target. I mean. And and the other stuff, I mean, most rangefinders are going to pick that up. But you get out to those longer ranges, and a quality rangefinder is, you know, with a strong enough laser to, you know, hit mm-hmm. that target and reflect back is definitely worth its weight in gold. So, so the rangefinder I was using is the twenty four hundred ABS rangefinder from Sig. So it has a little weather unit in the front of it, and it's taking temperature, pressure, giving you a density altitude solution, and the Kestrel. Um, it's not a bird. It's um, actually a, a. It is though. A, yeah, <laughs> it's actually a, a weather unit that's doing the same thing, but it also has a little fan in it that you can get the wind at your location. But if you're shooting a thousand and eighty yards, knowing the wind at your location is like one, one data point. <laughs> yeah, it's like reading the first page of the book and then trying to figure out what the rest of the book is about. <laughs> um, sometimes achievable, sometimes not. Yeah, pretty tricky. So you have two minutes two minutes to range these five targets. And then I have a little arm board, arm board, like a, like a junior high quarterback. <laughs> and I get out my grease pen and I write down, um, how many mills I need to hold above the target. And then I'm estimating the wind and then, um, writing down how many mills I think my wind call needs to be. But this wind is huffing and puffing and whether it's in huff mode or puff mode matters very much for where this bullet's going to end up. So I just write down, the median of what I think the wind is doing. And then I make calls once I'm in the scope based on that. Two minutes goes by really quickly. And there were some stages where I did not get all my ranges done in time. And when that happened, that meant that the range that I didn't get done in time was the long one because I started close. And I think that was a tactical error (laughs) first time. So anyways, two minutes is up and they say, all right, you guys have five minutes to complete the course. So you start with a magazine and your rifle, bolt back, and you start shooting. On Ben's course, talk us through what that course of fire was like. So first target, pistol target. It was an Ipsic-shaped um, target. Which Ipsic is like a little human silhouette from the waist up. Uh, 134 yards, probably at a 30-degree angle downhill. And you're you're shooting ten rounds, um, and there's two scorable hits per shooter, and uh, you know speed is a factor. So it, from the from the the first pistol report is when we would start the time, and it was a five minute station. 
So 10 rounds or two impacts, whatever you're done with first, and then the, the second shooter or the team would go. And then our second engagement was a 330-yard 10-inch steel gong over a ridge in an adjacent draw. So again, you know, that, that distance, not a lot of wind, but for some of the smaller calibers, if there was a good gust of wind going, it, it may change things. Um, our third target was a, like a 525-yard 10-inch gong on a steel plate that was up that same draw that the first target was in, but further up. Our fourth target was a 1,080-yard Ipsic, and uh, that was at the head end of the draw, so you're shooting over two draws that come across at about a 45-degree angle. So again, like you say, first page of the book, where you're shooting from but the wind's doing all kinds of funky stuff and that draw actually kind of continued up to the left and then it 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 opened up so you got to think any wind coming that from that direction is going to funnel down and probably increase in velocity so we had a lot of uh, misses just to the right a lot of miss miscalculations based on wind on the the 525 and the 1080 to the right because that's because of the wind and then the fifth target engagement was a back to the 135-yard close-range target compared to the others, but it was offhand with your rifle. Um, and all four of the rifle targets were three shots per shooter looking for one impact. So if you impacted on your first shot um, and your partner impacted, you'd only shoot one at each target. So, um, And we time was a factor with the five minutes. We had several people that timed out before they even were standing because they were trying to dial in on the on the gongs so it was kind of a unique stage i think because of the offhand i think a lot of these guys weren't used to any offhand shooting and then the long range pistol also kind of threw them for a little bit of a loop so because that's a that's a poke with a with any kind of pistol especially so. the nine mil yep what are most guys carrying on most of it was nine um there were a few 45s Couple, um, couple 22s. Yep, some 22s. Some guys shooting. Yeah, that was that was hard to. I mean, we had to be on the target. Like <laughs> you're, you're looking for bullet splatter, not not a a ring on the gong. So what are you using five seven? <laughs> we had actually a couple guys with NFs too. Oh, did you? Dude, so, one thirty on that NFs, not. Yeah, but it's still a pistol. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know, off offhand shot with a pistol at 130 yards is a trick. But so, a pistol that's rifled. And going 1,900 feet per second is a little bit flatter shooting than oh for sure <laughs> your nine mil oh for sure yeah a nine mil is definitely starting to to unravel and turn into, <laughs> into corkscrew at 130 yeah. yards yeah. and uh, if if you guys ever have the chance to shoot at at 100 or 200 yards with a pistol I recommend you try and find a situation where it's sunny and the sun's behind you because you can see that bullet mm. and at 200 yards. That corkscrew is like a five foot <laughs> circle, and it's like, oh man! And I think uh, you know if if you hit something at that range, uh, it's because that target was born to be hit. <laughs> so my experience, Ben, on on your course, and and you'd brought your son out to the range, which was really cool. Um, he's a neat kid. He's a complete wild man. Yeah, three and a half years old. He was having just the time of his life. Um, so you, you were off, um, helping your son with something when I shot, but I shot the pistol target twice out of 10 shots, which I felt very good about. Mm -hmm. And I actually ran, ran your course with, without missing a rifle shot. And that was probably the, 
that 1080 yard shot is is one of the better shots that I've ever made but you know I I'd written down I'd written down all my data um, and then my partner Weston and I were going back and forth shooting each target consecutively Weston shot before me so I had the advantage he he did miss a couple targets but I had the advantage of seeing how he missed and getting to talk with him be like how much wind were you holding on that shot etc so then you know right after he shot I would shoot you know, as quickly as possible, as soon as he could get back on the scope to be able to spot my shot so that I'd be trying to capture the same wind condition that he was just shooting in. Um, and when it got out to that 1080 yard shot, I was holding 13.1 mils high and eight mils to the left. <laughs> so if yeah, you were shooting 308, right? I was shooting 308. So I was shooting the cross rifle from SIG in 308 and I was shooting SIG factory ammo their match factory ammo which was very accurate 168 grain it had six feet per second of standard deviation so the the difference in velocity velocity from one shot to the next was minuscule very very accurate but it's out of a 16 inch barrel this is a little gun i have it on my motorcycle Mm -hmm. it's a beautiful gun for a motorcycle but it's a little gun anyways most of the guns out there were insane like there's a lot of ten thousand dollar rifles on the course there's a lot of five thousand dollar optics on the course and i don't think very many people were shooting factory ammunition so you know i i was going going full full sig on this and i really wanted to see what what i could do with this stock factory situation and i i feel really good about it i feel like i did really well but that shot when i'm talking about 13 mils high and eight mils to the right uh, that was like 45 feet of bullet drop and 26 feet of wind drift. Dude, that's insane. And a first round hit. And a first round hit. And like belly button on this target. Like, <laughs> smoked it. And there's guys that that dropped very few shots over the course of two days on, on targets that were a lot farther. And in a 40 mile an hour windstorm, I watched this this kid put two out of three shots on a 1400 yard target Jeez. i think they were i i heard um him say he was he was calibrating 27 mile per hour crosswind wow. it was and that was it was coming at us yeah more than it was going across you were standing yeah. there we were watching and um this young gentleman first first round smoked it second round smoked it third round just hit a little bit right and i'm not sure i think they were 30 inch were they 30 inch i think they're 24 inch diamond 24 inch okay and a diamond shaped target is so deceptive there are a lot of ways to miss that target yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah you know it was it was blowing hard enough that when ben and i would stand up it, w- it would move us around you couldn't just stand still yep Ooh. and he just laid down and laced it twice i was like wow amazing so some of the best rifle shooting i've ever seen and some of the worst pistol shooting that i've ever seen (laughs) trust me there were a lot of guys that missed that pistol target so i mean if you if you rung that one twice like i said i wasn't there to to watch you missing a 130 yard pistol target like i don't i wouldn't have felt bad if Mm -hmm. i would have shanked 10 in a row like whatever that's not what this pistol was born to do yeah but there was a lot of like 20 yard pistol targets that dudes were burning up you know eight or ten rounds on to get their two hits it's like what are we doing here <laughs> like i know you're gonna lay down and smoke this thing <laughs> at 1490 <laughs> yards but um this 20 yard pistol target is just beyond you so it's it's just interesting and then when it came to the offhand shot on on your course of fire 
like, you know, it's a 130 yard offhand shot. And I've got this little rifle that's very convenient for it. But these guys that are packing a 24 pound ray gun, yeah. it's like, <laughs> yeah, you better have a beefy left arm if you want to make that happen. Yeah. <laughs> it really, I mean, I, I felt like our, our station, you know, not having been to one, I felt like people were like looking at you crazy when you told them what you had, you know, this is an offhand shot that you can't use any, any of your partner for this. You can't use a bipod. You can't use anything. And they're like, what could you kneel? You had to be standing. You don't have to be standing. And and they were like, man, you guys, I hate you guys. <laughs> you know, it was stuff like it's a that. 30 yard so. shot though. I know. I mean, and the thing was, is what it brought into it was, okay, you, you shoot your way out. And some of these guys were dialing for, for elevation. And I mean, we had a guy pull up, shot, couldn't, you know, he had his scope cranked. He didn't dial it back and he didn't dial his turret back to zero. So yeah. he shot, he wasn't seeing impact. And he, he, he put, you know, three, you know, he, he did three bullet splashes in the same spot. Yeah. 30 feet above the yeah, target. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and I'm there with binoculars and yeah. I can see it and I'm like. You know, and I'm like, you must be dialed up. And, and sure enough, I'm like, yeah, you, you see that white rock like up on the hill? I'm like, you hit right next to that all three times. Good grouping, though. Yeah. So, and he's like, oh, you know, I mean, it, it really, guys get in the rush yeah. of, of chasing that five minute time limit on that station. And, you know, you, you kind of don't think of it. So, and it's pretty I, realistic, though, yeah. in a hunting situation. It was funny because, um, I've been to a lot of the national state, all the cowboy action shoots over the years. Cause that's what we did. And, uh, you throw that like wrench in one of the stations. Cause these guys, they shoot the same style, the same thing. It gets very repetitive for them. And so like a lot of the national shoots, they'll do something really goofy. And there's like the segment of people that get really pissed off about it because this is not how they do it. Uh, this is not how, you know, a national cowboy action shoot is supposed to be. And then there's the guys that are like, Oh, that seems fun. You know, like it just, it gets split right down the middle and guys get pissed because it's like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's usually the guys that are like very proficient, at their lane like they could run their lane like no other and right. you throw that wrench in there and it's like you know the guy that doesn't dial down that's an easy shot right yep. like it's not hard but when's the last time he ever dialed down from a 1080 to a 130 you yeah. know and made that shot standing probably never <laughs> and that's exactly it that's yeah. that's what i mean it was one of those situations where it took those guys it was it was it took brains to 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 put all that together uh, it doesn't matter how much you spend on your equipment. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a mistake that you need to. Oh, make you put sure a time clock in there, and like those mistakes get amplified. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly what happens. But that's like we were talking before the podcast. Like that's those are hunting situations where that's that's what makes hunting hard. Hunting isn't like it's a four hundred yard prone shot on a standing broadside animal. At the range, that's easy. Put the time factor in there, all the other conditions, and all of a sudden you're like. Oh, I forgot to take my scope covers off. <laughs> you know, like you're yeah. something dumb. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 so easy. Or you, you know, and guys get excited. And, yeah. and when you're excited, your your rational thought goes away mm -hmm. because there's a deeper part of your psyche that has now taken the steering wheel. Mm -hmm. So I've seen guys who ejected every single shell <laughs> in their gun without firing any of them, and they <laughs> they thought that they were shooting, but they'd run the bolt. And then run the bolt, and then run the bolt, and never hit the trigger, and be like, he got away. <laughs> sure did. Uh, was um, this Stuart? It was Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it sounds 
you know, like it's possible, but, um, yeah, no, it's super interesting. Cody, you've done some, some long range shooting of a, of a different, of an older style, <laughs> right? You shoot yeah. sharps. Yeah. 4570. 4570 sharps. Yeah. And we were talking like we should, I should have taken the sharps up there and it'd be really fun to shoot a course like that. Um, so the sharps very capable at that range. Most people are really blown away that you shoot over 500 yards with the sharps. What well, is the sharps? So a sharps is the original long rifle, so to speak. Uh, it's, you know, one of the first, it was very popularized by the Buffalo hunts, um, of the West. Right at the uh, end of the civil war. It, right at the end of the civil war, it kind of became popular. It, I mean, that's what, that's what made it was the Buffalo hunts. It we could take down a Buffalo and guys were able to shoot very long range. Guys were also able to, uh, during a lot of the Indian conflicts, shoot a long ways. Things like this is kind of where that long range shooting started, so to speak, uh, was Buffalo hunting and the Indian conflicts. So it's, mine is a 30 inch barrel. Uh, so it's very long, shoots a straight walled cartridge. Mostly a lot of the era specific cartridges, um, we're all black powder, obviously. The 4570 became popular because that was kind of a government issue. You know the politics of why that became more popular. Um, there's the 45120, 45110s, like all these different calibers. 50. Uh, and, and the 45 is the caliber of the bullet. And 70 is the number of grains of black powder. Correct. Grains being a measurement of weight. Correct. And so, like back in those days, that's how they measured. That's how they used cartridges was basically like, Hey, this is a 45 caliber bullet with 75 grains of black powder. Reloading was pretty common. Like in the field, reloading was pretty common in those days. Right. 30, 30, yeah. 30, 40 Craig, Correct. same Correct. game. So a lot of those things stuck throughout the years, even though we use smokeless now. So a lot of the, you know, 40, like the sharps, if you will, the Quigley gun, also popularized by the movie, you know, and he shoots a bucket at like 1,200 yards. I think they figured it out, um, which is very doable. A lot of those competitions go out to 1,000 yards, but a lot of them are, you know, they're laying in the prone or seated. They're shooting silhouette targets, usually known distance. Uh, there's different competitions throughout Montana, but as far as I know, not very many people are doing like a sniper style where it's like <laughs> multiple positions, multiple variant, you know, variant in ranges and all these things. So I think it'd be a blast to go up and shoot it like that. It would. It would be super fun. And it would be neat to incorporate some of this newer range finding technology yeah. with this very old rifle technology. And I'm all about that because I will say trad gun shooters are kind of like trad bow hunters. They get very like <laughs> opinionated. You know, this is like, we have to do it this old school way. And so then they end up buying beef from me at the end of the hunt. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but you know, some people within the sharps world are very like old school. I think it'd be a blast to go. And you know, as we were talking about, like my veneer site has mill right on it. So we could run a range finder. And I could, you could be like, all right, hold 26 mils, and I'm, I'm dialing to 26 click, click, mils. Click, 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 click. In fact. <laughs> what's, the, what's the velocity? Uh, Out of curiosity. Smell. The yeah, speed you have smell. to go off. <laughs> <laughs> Depends. So, and this is like, okay, so when I, my hunting cartridge that I run for a sharps, uh, and this is like very anti that community, but the FTX bullet has much higher BC than right. a lot of these like, 500 grain lead bullets the ftx is designed to run in a shorter case so if you go buy factory ftx ammo uh an ftx for people who are listening like it's a copper jacketed bullet with a polymer tip uh, much like you would see in most of your rifles uh and because of that polymer tip 
when Hornady designed that, they had to shorten the case, shorten the OAL, uh, so that it could be fed in a magazine or over in, a, in a tubular. Overall length. Over yeah, overall OAL. length. <laughs> and so I just started loading up full length, full hot, and I want to, God, I want to say I'm running 21, 22, maybe even 2,300 feet per second. Woo, that's cooking. Yeah. So is that is that the one you're going to borrow me? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Ben's got a buffalo hunt, but I feel like you can't use an FTX bullet on that hunt. <laughs> well, I, I think yes, you I think can. The, I think the problem is going to be finding one. That's that's not that's shooting. The only thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. everyone gets romantic about how they're going to shoot that buffalo, yeah. and then they realize like, oh, I got to find one first. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, uh, but so back to that. I, you know, if I think if you had some some modern technology it'd be really fun it'd be fun anyway but so are you going to put a a picatinny rail on the bottom of the thing and mount an atlas tri- <laughs> bipod onto it i don't know like wh- wh- where do you draw the line or do you have like you know the, know. Where the is deer the hoof bipod no we're not doing deer hoof bipod <laughs> uh, th- we're gonna have a spartan precision like bipod lay down because there's Can a fun- you when, a- you, when you start shooting <laughs> When you start shooting, you know, these older school guns, it can turn into reenactors pretty quick. And before you totally. know it, you're wearing a buckskin diaper yeah. and, <laughs> and yeah. you know, running around trying to trade pemmican <laughs> for, uh, for uh, you know, a range on that target. It's rocking fringe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no, dude. Okay. So when uh, I sh- did an elk hunt with my sharps. 2016 and people like comment with me yeah, yeah you were there and people commented be- well no but the year before that when i shot that bull and the snake oh yeah yeah, yeah. uh and i ha- i was using ftx bullets on yours i actually we used the lead bullets <laughs> yeah. on that one uh but people were like oh you know it's non-traditional like well i also didn't wear leathers you know like yeah i don't have to go full out i just like using the gun yeah I- i'm perfectly fine with high quality gear also a have a finder. phone with satellite imagery coming to me from outer freaking space. Come on. Oh, and my dope charts. Yeah. Like, um, like, everything's still in a ballistic calculator. Yeah. Like, I'm not trying to wing it. Yeah, Elon Musk's chief engineer helped me with this <laughs> vicariously. I don't know. Is that stupid, though, to, like, use his old school rifle and then also apps to control the elevation and you know you wonder you wonder you know versus today's society and and back then you know the mountain men that were that were out trapping and living in the mountains you know basically living off what they could hunt and gather you know the the different tools and and things that they always had on them you wonder if people then look at at those you know the more the people that lived in town looked at those people kind of like how you know like you go to one of these matches and guys have these giant waist belts with all these pockets and it, it's kind of like the same i had 16 pockets in my pants yeah we were <laughs> he found one when we were talking there i'm like how many pockets do those pants have i had oh, yeah. the most tactical pants on the course hands down <laughs> but you wonder if if you know from us you know a, a time frame if back then people looked at those mountain men that had all those very specific tools kind of similarly how we look at like the tactical aspect of 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 things today you know as technology has advanced and stuff like well, that. I guarantee every one of those buffalo hunters would have had a fancy sig rangefinder if they could have one <laughs> well <laughs> absolutely but i mean right now all the guys shooting the prs stuff have you know ridiculous mm-hmm. equipment and it's the same back then those those guys that were were out there doing that you know, Tim Butler, who's a Marine and one of the chief engineers for, for SIG for pistols, you know, he and I were on an elk hunt together last fall in Colorado, and we were talking about 
modern versus traditional and kind of what that meant. Where, where do you draw the line with technology? And these are big questions to wrestle with. And Tim's take on it was that, in, you know, Tim's, Tim's an older guy. He's a Desert Storm guy. He's like, look, my dad used a bolt-action 30-06 because that was the best thing that was available then. And we should use the best thing that's available now. And when it comes to hunting and an animal's life, there's no gambling. Yeah. Like I, I don't take maybe shots. And I was thinking about this earlier today because when you're riding a motorcycle, you get a lot of time <laughs> to think about stuff. So I was thinking about this earlier today and I've taken a bunch of shots on animals in the field that I should not have taken, that I didn't have any business shooting that far. Yeah. And the more I shoot and the more conditions I shoot in, the more I realize how many factors go into where that bullet ends up and how few of those I used to account for. And I got lucky a bunch of times, <laughs> um, but I, I'm just at a point where I don't want to do that. I don't want to gamble. If I take a shot, it, it needs to be the surest possible bet. You know, if, if I am up against the wall and there's a dude on the other end and he's the firing squad, I want him having the best stuff out there. <laughs> I don't want him maybe. I yeah. think that's a natural progression, though. I mean, I remember when I, you know, in terms of hunting, you know, it's looking at that in a similar fashion um, where every time I found um, an animal that I wanted to, you know, that I'm like, okay, I'm going to stock it. I don't care how hard that stock is. I'm going to go in. And now I sit up on the hill and I glass, I find an animal and I'm like, I start to pick the terrain apart. I'm like, that's a low percentage stock. I'm not even going to try. Yeah. You've got that backcountry fuel pocket meat. That's right. <laughs> you could be happy on top of that. <laughs> Definitely. But I tell you, I mean, I can be fat and, and still kill stuff. I mean, it's, <laughs> amen, it's, brother. <laughs> amen. That's, and that's, I, I feel like that, that, that progression happens some people it happens much earlier. Some people it happens. But, I mean, it's all based on the number of experiences that you have. I think you start to kind of, from an, an energy expenditure standpoint, I think you, you learn. And I, I, I can agree with that I, it, in the same sense. I mean, I was just talking to a buddy of mine. When I first started Western hunting, it was in the, the Badlands of North Dakota. And I lived in Minnesota. And we were talking about, like, our first year out there chasing mule deer, like, shooting further than we should have and like it's like well sooner or later i'm gonna hit one of these things and then we'll you know we'll figure it out from there and now it's like nah i'll wait for my opportunity you know it, it changes how you look at it and so so i can i mean I, I think that that's just you know comes with experience and and stuff like that but i i definitely agree with that statement and there's this interesting problem with marksmanship on animals where a, a sure hit, a lethal hit is the goal. Mm -hmm. And then people can take a degree of comfort in a complete miss because they haven't wounded that animal. That's a bigger miss than a wound. Mm -hmm. So if you completely shank an animal, while you can feel morally comfortable that you didn't wound an animal, you need to do a radical reset on your shooting because that was... A, a big miss and you've got a lot of ground to cover to get through that wounding zone of accuracy before you can get back to hundred percent lethality. <laughs> well, you may feel better about your moral compass that you did miss, but you should feel less about your moral compass because you took a shot so bad that you airballed it. Yeah. I mean, it's like 
stand up in the middle of a game and you airball a three, are you like, wow, I'm really glad I didn't even hit the rim? Or are you like, wow, I'm an idiot. Like, well, I had no business taking that shot or what happened there. Right. I should get closer next time. <laughs> I should get closer. <laughs> Maybe layups are my thing, you know? I don't know. <laughs> What's your thought on follow-up shots? This is something that's occurred uh, within the sphere well, a couple times in the last, let's just say, year. People tend to, like, they shoot an animal, like, oh, he's going down. Don't shoot again. Depending on the animal, I guess, but for the most part, if I shoot an elk with a rifle or a bear with a rifle, given my experience, I tend to shoot until it stops. Like, I am confident that that MFR is not going anywhere because I've seen too many get away. And it's like, you're what's more ethical? Wasting, let's say, one pound of meat? Let's say, we can say two and a half. Or an animal getting away, wounded, and not finding it. I'm going back to that firing squad, even if it's dying. Like, if this thing's getting all wobbly and completely losing cabin pressure and going down, if my bullet can get there first and I can end that lo- animal's yeah. life and pain faster, I'm going to do it. If, if I'm up against the wall in that firing squad and somebody wings <laughs> me through one lung and his buddy goes, not, nah, not, nah, save your bullet. <laughs> He's done. He's going down in any minute now. Like, no, keep yeah. shooting. Headshots. Keep shooting. Bring <laughs> yeah. it on. You know, yeah. pour the coals to it. So, and I really do think of it in terms of like how I would want to die in that situation. If death is certain, mm. let's make it imminent, as imminent as possible. And quick and I've, painless. Yeah. I've seen elk. One of, the, one of the scariest things for me as a guide is when I see an elk get hit and then just pancake. Oh, yeah. Because that is an animal that can get up and vanish and leave like three drops of blood and no tracks. <clears throat> yep. And I think it varies too. I mean, um, a, a bull I killed a couple of years ago, I shot at, at, a, at a, it was a good shot. It was a little low. He circled up around and stopped, you know, within, within what I shoot targets at not what I would take a, an initial shot at. And he stood there and he looked the other way. He wasn't looking at me. I thought, okay, I'm going to shoot him again. And I shot again and I hit him in the same spot as the first shot. And that time I got a reaction and he ran up the hill and stopped. And, uh, he, he didn't die initially. I mean, it was, it was a low hit, low vital hit where it was lung, where, Basically, the blood was able to drain out of his lungs. It didn't fill his lungs up. Mm-hmm. And all the cows, he had like 30, 40 cows, and there were a couple small bulls, didn't know what happened. And they just kind of milled around. They kind of grouped up into a little you know, tight group and kind of stood around and were looking all over the place. And the bull went up, and he initially laid down, and then he stood back up after about, I don't know, probably 30 seconds laying down and... What I came to the conclusion of is when he laid down, he compressed, you know, the diaphragm and it just was, it was impeding his breathing. So he stood up and, and was able to actually get a little bit of, um, airflow through his lungs and the cows hung around long enough. It was in the evening that I couldn't stock back in for another shot. But the, the key was, is he didn't know what happened. He just all of a sudden had trouble breathing. And that's that's like the only situation when he's out of any kind of range. I think he was at like 180 yards or 200 yards. And 
obviously with the archery equipment, I'm not going to shoot that. I mean, that's like, all you're going to do is scare him yeah. and he's going to run off. And I waited for those, those cows. They eventually, the smaller bulls that were with the herd pushed him off and, and, and he was standing there and, and my approach didn't offer a shot cause he was facing directly on with head down and I could hear him breathing. Like I could hear he had trouble breathing and it was, you know, not the way you want it to happen, but it's like, you don't want to force it to the point of, cause if I would have bumped him, he could have gone, you know, three miles. Well, archery is a little bit different scenario where you're, you're playing this game of not spooking him because mm-hmm. you shoot a bull perfectly and he stands there. You almost don't shoot him again. Are you watching? If you can see him bleeding, say a frontal shot, and he's just pouring blood, don't move. Like he's gonna. Yep. If, you, if I'm watching blood come out, I'm probably like, eh. If he's keyed in on you, yeah. absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. It just depends on the situation. But I feel like with rifle, it's like the bang went off, the adrenaline went through the roof. Like some, like just keep shooting until it stops moving. Yep. Like that's my philosophy. And Maybe you, I'm wrong. And use a suppressor. That's true, too. Um, that makes a big difference in keeping those animals calm. They have a lot harder time knowing where that shot came from. And if you do need a follow-up shot, a suppressor makes a world of difference. Or if you have multiple hunters there and you have multiple animals to shoot at, a suppressor is going to give everybody a better opportunity. I, so this crossed, this is across the, the table. I'm now considering a suppressor. And everyone, so for, Rick for and sharps? I. Uh, yes. Is that is that legit? Can I do that? <laughs> I'm good with it. They make them. Do they? Yeah. I'm excited. <laughs> they make, I, I've, I've shot a suppressed, um, 4570. Really? Yeah. Like a Marlin? Uh, yep. Lever gun. Um, that it, doesn't, I've seen a lot of those. It was, it was impressive. I mean, Apparently all you tactical Marlin 1895s is like a, a thing now. Yeah. It was, it was a tactical out. I did that to mine before it was cool. <laughs> Which he started it, which, which makes it less cool. So I have a Picatinny <laughs> rail inside of mine that I can mount a flashlight on. Yep. I have a Picatinny rail on top that I have an intermediate eye relief scope that I can tip on mm. or off. I've got big, um, I've got a big loop lever on there. But that's that's my gun for it's when gun. somebody wounds a bear, and they're yep. like, "Hey, guide, I wounded a bear." I think he went that way into that super thick stuff, and now it's dark. Touch like, him up. <laughs> I'm on it. You know, it's, it's the worst case scenario as a guy. And, and it's happened to me several times. Yeah. But in that case, I need light. I need speed. And, you know, the same amount of energy as a, you know, lead brick thrown by Randy Johnson. <laughs> yep. Okay, back to the suppressor thing. Because yeah. I, considering this, uh, everyone I know who started hunting with a suppressor, no one's been like, yeah, suppressors are okay, but I'm not going to hunt with them. <laughs> yeah. It still hasn't happened. So I'm no. assuming that they're good. Yeah. Game changer. Do you get over the fact that you're carrying around like an eight foot two by four with you in the woods everywhere you go? Yeah, no. <laughs> My gun has a suppressor. I mean, I'm a I'm an archery guy, and um, I, up until two years ago, I I was I, I basically had like an AR that I was using. You know, in Montana, it's legal to hunt with big game with with a two two three, and I got into some situations on some mule deer's on late hunts where it was like kind of quartering towards, and I passed on the shot because what I had, and it's like all right. It's time to get a gun, and uh, the last two years I've hunted with with a suppressed three hundred win, and it's it's ridiculous. It's it's amazing. It's it's so much more fun to shoot. You know, you go to the range with a three hundred, and you you you're on a table, and the guy next to you has a braked three hundred. <laughs> That's me. And it's it's like <laughs> uncivilized. You know, <laughs> uncivilized. Your your contact uncivilized. gets knocked out every time he shoots his gun. You know, from four feet yeah, away in a filling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
get a nosebleed. <laughs> it's like shooting the Barrett. I, I, you know, when I, if I'm shooting just, just for fun, just for me, um, I, I don't even use hearing protection. Here's, here's the problem with the suppressor. And this is real is it will turn you into a sissy and you won't want to shoot a gun without it. And that, that's a legit problem. Like, you don't know how good you have it right now. And then you're going to get a can. You're like, wow, this is significantly better. Now I don't want to shoot this other stuff anymore. Mm. Yeah, be prepared to overhaul your, 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 your entire safe. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's why someone told me um, buy a 30 cal suppressor that can handle the, thir- the 30 HCA uh, and then just put it on a 6.5 or mm-hmm. 6 whatever you're going to do because the – the difference in the, you know, having them, like just being able to swap it over is very negligible. I don't know. I've never used them, but it's like a tone difference. It's not really a decibel difference, at least not noticeable. Hmm. So I've shot 30 cal cans on two twenty threes and it works great. Yeah. Frick, I want one now. Yeah. You got to do it and, and just get after it because it's a wait. You've got to wait six to 10 months, but which everyone doesn't do because like, oh, I'm not doing it because it's an 11 month wait, but you might, you're going to wait 11 months. Yeah. Right. When you finally decide to do it, it's still going to be the same weight. So and people you, will deliberate about it for that entire eleven month period. Ah, uh, yeah. I've been deliberating about it for about five, six years now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing that eleven month wait. I'll wait six years until they change it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just do it. Um, I don't. I don't think you'll regret it. But like this cross, you know, it's a 16 inch barrel. It's a folding stock. So when I fold that stock, that gun's only two feet long, dude. And, that's a sheep gun right and, there. And I can just throw it in a pocket in my pack. <laughs> I hate slings. I despise slings. So being able to put my <laughs> gun in my pack is a beautiful thing. So then when I add six inches of can to it, who cares? Yeah, that's true. Who cares? Yeah. Um, the other thing, and this is, this is a very Bozeman problem. Like every time I go spring bear hunting, I swear to God, there's like a bunch of yuppie people like hiking. And I always – like I carry a very big gun anyway, so – I feel like that that person that's like you're hunting in the wrong area. Uh, well, you gotta quit going up Sipes Canyon, man. <laughs> There's no bears up there. Well, and on the same note, like say you are sharing a multi-use area, you don't want to have a Thor's hammer thunderboom throughout the entire canyon when you shoot. If you just go poof, and you know it, it's still a loud report, like, but it's not. It doesn't go as far. It doesn't bother as many people. It doesn't displace as much wildlife. There's really no disadvantage to it. It is insane that they're still listed the way they are. It's you really wait for this tax. Stand. Really polite. Yeah, it's a polite civilized. thing to do. It's, it's, it's a civilized. You go. I. I mean, and I've heard this, and and James, you might be able to, you know, have have experience or knowledge of this. But I guess in in European countries, it's like impolite to shoot a gun without a suppressor. A lot of places they're required. New Zealand, you cannot own a pistol. You can buy a can at a hardware store. That's crazy. Yeah. I'm putting one on the sharps. Do it. <laughs> Let's make it 36 inches long. Why not? <laughs> uh, I want to so show up that shoot with like full tactical sharps. <laughs> yeah. So it's, instead of a bipod, you're going to have like a, a little little red wagon with your <laughs> sharps. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. I'd love it. So uh, what hunting lessons did you take away from the shoot this weekend some of the biggest lessons i took away are that if you if you intend to stretch out range in a hunting scenario and that's a very popular thing to do and some guys are very good at it some guys have gotten lucky at it like i have in the past um i want you to go out and shoot in adverse weather conditions to practice 
So if it's snowing, if it's raining, if it's cold as hell, um, if it's blowing really hard, if, especially if you've got like a good thunderstorm wind that's switching directions, oh, yeah. go shoot in it. Like if it's 68 degrees and sunny and there's no wind, yeah, you can be a hero on the range <laughs> and feel really good about your hits. But what are you really learning? Yeah. And while we can use um, a, a Kestrel to know our wind at the station, the skill you need to develop is understanding how wind is moving through terrain, understanding what 15-mile-an-hour wind versus 10-mile-per-hour wind looks like when it's hitting a tree at 400 yards, looking at grass on a side hill and seeing which direction it's moving. You know, is that wind fanning out? Understanding what lift does to a bullet. And that was something that, that I need to apologize to people for because previously I've heard people talk about lift, wind going uphill, thermal wind, and I've said, no, <laughs> no. But the way a lot of people explain it is that it's causing your bullet to rise. That's, that's incorrect. It's causing your bullet to not fall as fast as you previously predicted. Mm. So if you have five mile an hour wind going up a 30 degree slope, you have a, a quarter value crosswind effect on your bullet. So it's not going to descend as quickly because as wind pushing it up, the same way that wind can push it down. If you have a facing wind coming towards you, coming over the top of a canyon, um, that wind's going to be coming down and forcing your bullet down a little bit faster. So you just, you need to understand that there's so much that goes into this shot, so much that goes into this shot. And the, even the pressure you're putting on your gun on a really long distance shot, if you're gripping your, your forend too much, or you're putting torque on your pistol grip or squeezing your pistol grip, or your, your rear bag is, is different, all that stuff is going to make a big difference. So one thing that hunters can really take away from this precision shooting community that they're not doing right now, two things, two ways of supporting your gun. One is shooting off of a tripod. So all these guys are carrying tripods, every single one of them. And they have an Arca rail on their gun. Now, an Arca is a type of rail that mounts onto the head of a tripod. And you can get an Arca adapter to go on your binoculars, on your spotting scope, on your camera, and on your gun. And you're probably carrying a tripod anyways. A tripod is better than a bipod. A lot better. And you can take a leg off of most tripods and turn it into a bipod if that's a situation that you require. So think about mounting an Arca rail onto your rifle and then utilizing your tripod. Because bipods tend to be fairly ineffective in most hunting situations. Because when you get that close to the ground, you're probably shooting through brush. Mm -hmm. And if you shoot through brush on your side of the target, it is going to have a big impact on your bullet downrange, even just shooting through a little bit of grass. Especially at five, 700 yards. For sure. So learn how to shoot off of a tripod. Um, it's a small investment to get an Arca rail to put on your Did gun. you do most of your shooting off a tripod in a seated position or in a uh, prone position? Standing. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And when you do it, you have one leg facing you to help absorb recoil, and you step on that leg to anchor that down into the ground. Mm -hmm. So learn how to shoot off of a tripod, watch some YouTube videos, figure it out. But if you can mount an Arca rail onto your gun, think about doing that and then just switch out Arca rails for 
um, for your other optics and stuff that you bring with you. And then, then you can get more use out of that tripod that you're probably bringing with you anyways. Yeah. The other thing is a rear bag. So all these guys bring a bag. Most of them are sandbags or some type of other heavy medium that they're putting underneath their butt stock. So when they're shooting in the prone, their gun is resting on the bipod in front and then on the rear bag in the back. And you can manipulate that bag by squeezing it, squishing it around. And then you're not putting hardly any pressure on the gun besides with your cheek um, and then you can get it into good position and that gun is very steady. So if you're trying to break that 1080 yard shot, you don't want to be, um, holding the gun with your muscles. You want it connected to the earth as much as possible mm-hmm. because the earth is a lot steadier than we are. <laughs> now there's companies out there like Paladin that make lightweight rear bags that are just made out of little balls of foam and stuff like that. You know, you can get a rear bag that weighs less than a pound and that's your pillow at night, which is nice to have. And it's your rear bag during the day. You know, this is something that this should probably be in your pack if you're planning on taking this shot. Or, I mean, what I used last year, I've used sleeping bag, I've used puffy jacket, like just anything that'll like fit right there underneath. Um, Like, yeah, practice shooting with a dry bag full of some rain gear or whatever. Learn how to be supported. You know, if you're taking a... A sitting or a kneeling shot, put your pack on your thigh and, th- and mm. the top, top of it underneath your armpit and find a way to support your body so that you can get steady. Yep. But learn, learn how these precision shooters are finding steadiness and then find ways that you can apply that to your hunting situation. And learn wind. Because what I'm telling you about going out and shooting in windy conditions isn't so much that I want you to to learn how to do it. It's so that you can learn how freaking difficult it is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Especially in Canyon territory. I'll never forget when long range hunting first kind of became popular or whatever. There's these dudes that came in to one of the places we hunt and, uh, you know, they these thousand yard guns or whatever. So they're going to prop up on this middle point and we call it, now we call it sniper Ridge and you know, they could shoot anything in this Canyon and those cats, you know, they had their laptop out. I don't know how long ago this was, cause it was like laptop days, the laptops way back in the back country. And they're like putting in data and launched off at least a box and a half of ammo on opening morning and never touched a thing. Right. And it was like the wind you can't predict in those canyons. You're like, if you cross two canyons, it's like winds going this way, swirling this way. And, it changes a lot. Yep. Especially in big, big mountains. So, you know, the, the great skill and one of, you know, I think the core skills of hunting is stalking and stalking is a lot of fun. It's very challenging. You have to get creative. You have to be precise in the way you do it. You learn a lot about terrain and vegetation and animals and wind in that process. So, you know, help, help yourself develop that too. And you, you want to get closer because a closer shot is easier shot to make. Do you think factory ammo is doable these days? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the things I was able to pull off this weekend were remarkable with yeah. factory ammo and, and a factory gun. I, you know, a bunch of people have been asking me how this shoot went, and I described it as me racing a, a Ford Mustang in a Formula One race. <laughs> And Ford Mustang's a hell of a car, right? But uh, Formula One is like a thing unto itself. Yeah. But with with the gun that I had, I was able to put pressure on these guys that are professional shooters. That's all that they do. And they're very experienced at this. 
it, it was really uplifting for me to have that positive experience. Dude, I think factory ammo has come a long ways. Oh and I would gosh. argue that like some factory ammo is better than some reloaders. Um, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to see them. Um, you know, I know at some, some shoots they add like a production class. Yeah, like a stock car. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, dude, it, that does change it. Like, I don't know. Like, I you, would say factory ammo has come quite a ways in the last Well, no. I mean, I, what I'm saying is, is like, okay, so everybody has these kitted out guns, you know. I mean, like like we were talking, $10,000 into one of these rifles is probably, I mean, people don't bat an eye at that. But what if you added a production class that was um, factory, like factory ammunition. Factory rifles? And factory rifles. That'd be fun. So, and that, that would leave a, that would put a platform in there for like an average guy to feel like he did good. And I bet you if, if, if you compared yourself to anybody else shooting the stock production, <laughs> production equipment, I mean, I mean, a scope only does so good. Right. You're only, you're only so good with a scope, Yeah. but the, the rifle I think is, is where the significant advantage and, and the, the scope's only doing as good as the user is using it. Yeah, I'm. So. I'm really interested in putting together a shoot that is a, a total archery challenge style shoot um, with you know animal shaped silhouettes that have swinging kill zones. Add the element of hiking, and add the element of, of spotting your targets, mm-hmm. and put some time constraints and and some mandatory shooting positions on there, and then you know make it be a gun that that people can buy, and you know that the hunters are using. I, I would love to see something. I would like that. I would think that this would take hunting to the level it needs to be on the shooting capacity because so many dudes go out, sight their gun in, prone position at the range or off a bench. They only shoot off a bench or bench rest and then they go out in the field and they're like, I can't shoot standing up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you mean? What what are all these bushes in my way for? I mean, <laughs> yeah. come on. I always bring up ants because one of the times that that I was hunting buffalo in Africa I was pegged down by like 300 Buffalo at, you know, 150 yards in there, just in this big mass. And I was waiting for a bull to get clear and I had big, mean African ants crawling inside of my clothes, (laughs) gnawing on me. And I was scared. You you stand up in that situation. The whole herd comes at you. Potentially. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you could be the stuff between a Buffalo's toes really quickly. (laughs) And one of these, uh, one of these uh, courses of fire had a um, a prone position that was in an ant hill, and I was like, "I've done this before. I've had this experience." <laughs> Did it really? Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> and I saw it, and I was like, "Weston, why don't you shoot from this one? I'm going to go over here." <laughs> <laughs> and was that in, was it intentional, or you never know with a guy like Peter Howell? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you that's never true. know. If we do, if you do the. Um hunter marksmanship course, whatever you want to call it. Uh, you need to do a grizz- charging grizzly bear target too. That'd be a good, um, good pistol target. Yeah. So let's talk, let's talk bear guns real quick. And okay. that'll, that'll, that'll be what we ended on. So, yep. Bear spray check in this world. We're also going to carry a pistol. Um, let's say it's going to be a semi-automatic. What features are you looking for in that gun? You asked me this question before and I'm terrible at answering it because I'm really bad at saying, here's how you should design the thing that would be better than the thing I have. I'm really good at, this is what I have and works. Um, and not so good at inventing it for some reason. Uh, but having said that lightweight, 
I don't know. I go, we had this argument about lightweight versus full size versus compact. Like they start shooting a, let's just say 10 mil, for example, start shooting a 10 mil with a compact frame and see how accurate you are. Like yep. very few people are accurate with that. Um, but I do feel like when you pack a pistol around miles and miles a day, it gets heavy and heavier by the day for some reason. Uh, well, and another consideration is, is mag capacity. You get one of these double stack mags in a 10 mm. doesn't yeah. matter how light it is. You fill it up with 220 with. grain bullets. And all of a sudden it's like 14 pounds. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a boat anchor. Uh, I don't know. I, I would like the ability laser grip. I don't know. Ben, what do you got? I've got, I've got two guns, two bear guns. They're both 10 M or well, One's a 10M. My semi-auto's a 10M. It's a Sig Match Elite. It's it's pretty fancy to, to use as spare protection, um, but I'm very accurate with it. Very accurate with it. It's it's a full size and uh, it's got double action, which is obviously preferred and, and much safer. And then my other gun is a Smith and Wesson 329 PD. You know, it's got the titanium frame, the scandium cylinder, fewer shots. It, it is a 44 mag, so it's got more punch. Mm-hmm. And uh, that gun is terrible to shoot because it's so light. Yeah. But, you know, if you put like a, a 45 Colt through it just for fun, I think that's what it is. Again, I'm, uh, I'm confused right now. So the, the they're, they make like a... A really light tart, like a... 44 a, Special. 44 Special, that's what it is, sorry. Oh, that's confusing. So... 45 Colt through a 44 Mag. 40, 44 Please Special. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean... Shooting shooting that gun with that is is fun. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in in your head, if you've ever shot it with a barrel load, you're, you're flinching three seconds before the, the trigger <laughs> breaks over. <laughs> it's that bad. You're like... And, and honestly, if I've ever in a situation where... I would have to use one. I've never, I never have. I feel like I would not waste my bullets until I know that every one of my bullets is going to hit the whites of their eyes, hit the mark. Yeah. So I think a lot of people get into a panic. They just start, start shooting. And then the bears at 10 feet. And if, if, if it, if it continues to come and you never know, I mean, Okay, what was your things? Because I remember the last time you told me this, it was off podcast, but you were talking and it sparked some ideas. What was your, your features that you liked? Pointability. Um, Agreed. So that when you're in a panic and you grab the gun, it's pointing at what you're looking at. Yeah. So ergonomics that are consistent with, with you. I want enough enough weight or, or ports in the barrel so that the follow-up shot is, is a little bit faster. Mm, ported barrel I like that yeah I want it to have some reflective quality so I can see it in a headlamp immediately yeah I like that one too I want it to have enough texture in the grip that if my hands are bloody if I'm gutting an animal which is a likely scenario when a bear mm-hmm. shows up that my my wet slick hands can get a hold of this gun and control it and then I want it to to be able to be packable still I'll take it back to motorcycles you need to dress for the wreck. Like, preferably, I ride my motorcycle in 72-degree weather with jeans and a T-shirt. Yeah. But I don't. 
um, I dress like I'm about to land on Mars and I have pads everywhere that I can get pads and I have the highest quality of protection that I can have because I've wrecked before. And after you've wrecked once, you know, you want as much squishy hard stuff around you as possible. <laughs> Otherwise you are the squishy hard stuff that then becomes squishy in places that it shouldn't. Yeah. Um, or it gets left on the pavement. Right. So don't bring the gun to pack. Like that's, that's dressing for the ride. That's true. Bring, bring the gun for the bear and then you're dressing for the wreck. So what, what gun do you want to have in your hand when it's going down? Now I've been charged by a handful of animals, hippo, buffalo, mountain lion. You do not have time for very many shots. People really focus on magazine capacity. They want Mm. more bullets is more better. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, you're not going to have very much time. And I'm in full agreement with you. You want to wait. You have a little bit more time than you think you have, but you have fewer shots than you think you have. So wait for that better shot, that closer shot, and execute it well. And then So what's your dream magazine capacity? Seven. I don't care. Like, if you're getting three shots off, you started too early. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. started too early. Yeah. But isn't there like somebody said for like, hopefully the warning, AKA warning shot that accidentally missed him at 24 yards is better than like no shot until 10 yards. I think if he's committed, he's coming. And that's the argument I make against bear spray. So I guess it stands true. I always say it with bear spray. Like, I think it depends on the scenario too. I mean, for sure. I yeah. think a lot of people don't realize that some, some ridiculous percentage, ridiculously high percentage. I was told by a, a, a friend that, that worked on the interagency bear study for several years said it's like 95% sows. Yeah. And the most dangerous is a sow, obviously, with cubs. And they don't mess around. They're, they're not bluff charging. But if it's a lone bear, males will typically bluff charge. Uh, a female without cubs will typically bluff charge. Um, but there's no way. I mean, a bluff charge looks the same. Right. Until they stop. Yeah. So, I mean, and nobody has enough experience to, to know if that's a bluff charge. I think if you're in a scenario where you see cubs, especially young cubs, you you take that as, yeah, that, that bear ain't stopping. And so, I, And I don't think that when that bear is, is charging, that it knows whether it's going to so check up or not. I think that there's that, probably a few times where it's like, I'm pot committed. It's yeah. looking for a reaction out of whatever it's charging, yeah. I think. If, if I think the bluff is a decision at that point to mm. check up. So if you think that you can identify whether that's a bluff or not, when that bear is coming, like you're trying to come up in, in your own mind, something that that bear hasn't decided yet itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're probably being a little bit arrogant. <laughs> a little bit. So. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say like, it's not worth making that risk of a decision. Not worth saying, is it a bluff charge or not a bluff charge? Okay. Another thing I want to add to this is I've seen some guys that I will not name, but I've seen enough guys on video who have their pistol in one hand and their bear spray in the other. <laughs> and I, I just don't think that's the move. I think you need to make a decision. Like, don't do two things poorly. <laughs> Never half-ass two things. Yeah. Always a whole ass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need to, we need to whole ass whichever d- direction you need to go. That's on you. Um, what what about side pistol? Oh, I cross draw. I, I carry it under under my binos. Do you? Okay. Um, I use a Rasco holster, and I'm I'm actually fairly fast with it. So my fastest um, draw to hit is like 1.1 seconds on 
on sort of the tactical rig like I, like I carried it at this match mm-hmm. and that's a that's a belt with a with a draw holster that I carry at my hip that's that's a draw that I practiced a lot you know guys like you know Max or Daniel they're getting down into like you know 0. 0.6 0. 0.8 seconds um, I think Max has the world record for for six shots from draw to six shot and it's like 1.4 seconds 1.3 oh. seconds like ridiculously fast. That's stupid fast. Max is, you know, the fastest pistol shot in the world. Yeah. Um, Sounds like a good way to shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's practiced a lot. Well, for me um, anyway, I mean. But, um, yeah, so when when I'm in that 1.3, 1.5 range um, for, for draw to shot out of my bino harness, where that's something that's on me all the time, I can wear it while I'm working on an animal. I'm not taking it on and off with a pack. Mm-hmm. The issue I have with putting it on your hip is if it's on your belt, then your your waist strap of your pack is going over it, and that doesn't work. So then people transition it to their pack, and then they take their pack off sometimes. Yeah, yeah, without my, it. My bino harness stays on me until I crawl in my sleeping bag at night. So I, I'm similar, but I will adjust depending on the situation. So if I'm looking for a mule deer outside of Cody, Wyoming, I'm expecting to go sideways. It's not... It's not a matter of if, it's when. Uh, and in that case, like, I'm doubled up, bear spray and gun, guns on chest, uh, even though I'm rifle hunting. Say, I don't know, I'm in the Bridgers. Like, I don't think that's going to be a high a high probability of an attack situation, even in a wounded game or a gutting or skinning or whatever. Um, so I'll probably either run it there uh, on my pack and run a bear spray on my harness just because it's lighter and it also depends on heat like if i'm it's 80 degrees out and i'm antelope hunting probably not gonna run my rasco i'll probably run it on my pack or whatever so like i i'll switch it up you know if i go to colorado and i'm rifle hunting i don't even take a pistol i'm like screw the weight i'll just have my rifle you know should be no bears here who knows so like i think it's situational dependent like if you're super high grizz country yeah i'm stacked like guns close very close but yeah if not, if I'm hunting in Oregon, arguable. <laughs> yeah, leave that one alone. <laughs> um, all right, fellas, any closing thoughts? Anything else you want to bring up? Get off your chest? Sharps for life. So you're committed <laughs> next year. Sharp, sharps for S3? Yeah, I'll do it. Okay. How tactical can I go or not go? You, Dude, I'm the man with 16 pockets in my pants. You can't go too, too tactical. <laughs> Actually, you here. can. Can um, I get a vest? If, if you're going to shoot a true sharps, you have to wear a fringe jacket. Too. Yeah, buckskin diaper. <laughs> no, I'm going to go like polar opposite. I'm going to like 5'11", top to bottom. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Blacked out. <laughs> Blacked out. Never take my sunglasses off. <laughs> Cerakote your, uh, your, your sharps. You yes. know, Coyote Brown. Yes. Oh, uh, man. People would be so upset. <laughs> uh, I need to get like a chassis stock for my jeez <laughs> oh, did they make them for for the 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 octagonal where barrels there is they will there's a way yeah where there's a cnc machine <laughs> there's a way uh well you're also gonna have to find somebody to be your shooting partner because i'm not gonna be part of that abortion <laughs> i'll go with you <laughs> because when we were elk hunting if we had elk running all around us at varying yardages and you were dorking around with the vernier sight to just between 300 and 130 yards i was yeah. losing my marbles here's <laughs> Here's a, here's a closing story for you guys. So James and I went 
cow hunting a couple years ago and i was like oh i'm gonna go shoot with the sharps we roll up on a herd of elk eh, probably like 40 yards stopped the scooter well it was also like 39 seconds into our hunt <laughs> yeah we literally drove the scooter up the hill parked and you're like well there they are <laughs> it's like this is not how a sharps hunt goes i don't know if i, I put the memo in before this deer guide but <laughs> it was like elk 40 yards from the scooter oh, they man. stand up and then it becomes a world-class show for the next i don't know 30 minutes of us chasing elk yeah and when you have a fat so, guy and crippled guy just yeah hobbling around, around the like, <laughs> so how the sight on a sharps work is like you have this like little you have to tighten or loosen it up and then you like screw for your mill so it has mill dashes so i have the fancy uh junior high quarterback armband that says uh how many mills for what yardage so you're like doing math and then you're like at this mill and so you're running through the trees but it's like 40 yard shot okay 200 yard shot okay 40 yard shot but it's not like adjusting your scope where it's like click 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 it's like spin 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 tight and then like two seconds later like oh there they go again (laughs) it's like okay spin 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 (laughs) just a gong show in every sense of the word but we did get it done yeah we did get it done yeah yeah elk in the freezer well gentlemen i want to thank you both for your time today if you want to know more about the Rich Outdoors podcast or about Backcountry Fuel Box, where do they find that? Uh, check it out, podcast, anywhere podcasts are found. The Rich Outdoors, it's on Spotify, it's on iTunes, it's on everywhere. Um, and from there, or backcountryfuelbox.com. Uh, or shoot me a message, whatever social platform you prefer. If you got questions, I'm happy to help. How about you, Ben? Um, where do people find you? Facebook. Facebook I, yeah, I'm on Facebook. Mm-hmm. I'm not very active. Yeah. Um, I'm on Instagram, uh, Ben Gatormson. Okay. He's a killer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've posted since on IG since 2018. Hmm. Still saying so. 2000, huh? You going to keep that up the whole century? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> makes it, makes it clear. Switch to the 20, bro. Yeah. Switch to the 20. Someday we can drop the 20 completely. I don't know when that day is, but. Yeah. One of these days, we're just going to be able to say the second. Well, numbers. when you say the twenties, like we're in the twenties now, mm-hmm. it's still kind of like, are we talking nineteen twenties or, <laughs> or the twenty twenties? Well, us um, who shoot guns from the century <laughs> don't get confused. It's going to be eighty nine years or yeah. Not, I, sh- I shoot a gun from like two centuries ago, so yeah. you know it's fine. Yeah, I think Sharps is like eighteen sixty one, something like that, right? Originally, yeah. Whoo. Uh, 63 right in there is it is original sharps over in big timber here is that original sharps Uh, no it's not they they relocated there that's not even that's not the real sharps oh okay that's a company that called themselves sharps they make the best sharps out there right now but that's not who originally founded Uh, it okay nerd (laughs) (laughs) true colors shown Uh, all right thanks We'll catch you next time. Peace. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Cody has been a good friend for years, and after getting to know Ben over the past few days, I can tell you we're going to be buddies for a long time, too. I encourage you to check out Cody's Backcountry Fuel Box. I subscribed for a couple years, but shamefully ate everything before it ever reached a backpack. And since you are the podcast type, you should check out his show, The Rich Outdoors. Ben is the kind of guy you want to have a beer with, and I encourage you to find the guy and take the chance to do just that. 
This podcast was edited by Emily Brannigan, with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to subscribe and share it with a buddy. I'll catch you next week.